Father, again, we come to you and are grateful for this time that you've given us to be together. Thankful that you have given us another year of life, that you have sustained us. Lord, we don't know what your plans are for this coming year. Um, Lord, you may even uh, choose to, to return. I pray that we would be ready. Pray now as well as we look to um, your word that you would give us understanding by the power of your spirit and that you would motivate us to live it out. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, today is New Year's Day and you know so often on the first uh, Sunday of the new year preachers will uh, talk about New Year's resolutions. Um, and then they'll somehow tie that into the sermon. And so I'm going to be very predictable today. I'm going to do exactly that. <laughs> Especially because, I mean, today is New Year's Day. I mean, you, you, we have to talk about resolutions. Perhaps some of you made a resolution this coming year regarding a diet or exercise or a particular milestone that you want to achieve this year. Uh, some particular event, maybe something regarding your career or, or anything like that. But, but I'd like to suggest for all of us a more personal resolution that we would make this year. I would like to suggest that you make a commitment beginning today, January 1st, 2017, that you make a commitment to be a peacemaker. That you make a commitment and be resolved to be a reconciler. That you make a pledge to address conflict biblically. That you make, and let me call this a resolution for conflict resolution this year. We've been talking recently uh, in our series in Colossians uh, a few weeks ago on the the family. We've hit that part of the letter of Colossians as it's addressed uh, wives and and husbands. We've been talking about that. And so I want to aim this resolution to conflict resolution particularly to our marriages. Particularly to our marriages. For this is where it seems so much conflict takes place, doesn't it? It seems that those we are closest to are the ones we have the most difficulty living with. It should not be so, but you're laughing because you know it's true. My wife and I, we just celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary two days ago. And thank you. You can't believe she's been with me for that long, but... Uh, it was about 10 years ago on our anniversary, my, my wife and I had one of the worst fights we've had in our marriage on our anniversary at a very, very nice Italian restaurant. <laughs> we still call that night the, the night that we had a very expensive conflict. <laughs> Unfortunately, conflict is nothing new to marriage, right? You don't have to be married very long to experience it. In fact, I have... I kid you not, receive phone calls from couples on their honeymoon who have gotten into a disagreement and needing help and counseling to address it. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been married, right? In fact, it uh, reminds me of the story of this elderly couple who had, uh, were on a trip together and they had stopped at a cafe to have a meal with one another. And, and when they left the cafe, they had been driving for a while. And all of a sudden, the wife realized she had left her purse at the restaurant. They had been traveling at least an hour together, and they were up in the mountains, and so turning around was very difficult. Well, the husband did not 
uh, take too kindly to this realization on his wife's part. And, and so he was extremely angry. And he scolded his wife the entire way back to the restaurant. He was telling her things like, why couldn't you have thought about this earlier? Do you realize how much time we're wasting doing this? Do you realize how much money we're, we're spending now on gas to go back? You're always forgetting things. Right? You can picture the scene, right? He just wouldn't let up. But finally, to her relief, she saw the cafe in sight. And so as they stopped there and she quickly got out of the car, her husband rolls down the window and he yells out, Hey, while you're in there, you might as well get my coat and wallet. (laughs) No, that's not the fight my wife and I had that night, by the way. (laughs) Conflict comes pretty easy. In fact, sadly, too easy. Conflict even comes over the smallest of issues. Think of the arguments perhaps that you've gotten into with others. And sometimes over the smallest of things. Not setting the alarm clock, leaving the window open, taking the bed sheets, right? All kinds of things that we get into these major fights over. But conflict is found in every nook and cranny of human existence. In our jobs, our schools, our homes, even in our churches. And this should not surprise us, because even the most godly have disagreements. Even the most godly have conflict. We see several examples of that in Scripture, don't we? But one that just strikes me every time I think about it is in the upper room. Luke 22, we read how just at the the time and the moment right after they partook of the Last Supper together, guess what happened? The disciples get into an argument over who's the greatest. Think about that. In the upper room, Jesus is there. They just had this solemn ceremony, and they're fighting about who's the best one among them. Incredible. We uh, can remember Philippians 4.2, Yodia and Syntyche, two godly, mature women in the church that, that Paul had encouraged and exhorted to reconcile. In fact, even calling others in the church to come alongside and help them. And Paul himself was not immune to conflict. We remember his argument A sharp disagreement, the Bible says, between he and Barnabas in Acts 15. In fact, an argument so sharp, they parted ways. This dynamic missionary duo split up over a conflict. And so I think it's important that we talk about conflict today, not not how to start one. We know how to do that well. No, let's talk about today how to resolve one and how to resolve conflict biblically. And again, I'll I'll be especially focusing on marriage, but that that is not the only place where conflict takes place, right? So those of you who are not married, don't tune out. The principles apply to you as well. But today, on this day, January 1st, 2017, let us make a resolution for conflict resolution. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, the last two verses of this chapter, Paul gives us particularly helpful instruction on how to resolve conflict biblically how to do it god's way and again we we need to talk about this topic and and i think it's appropriate to discuss in the beginning of the the new year because conflict is one of the greatest threats to our relationships especially our marriages and especially if that conflict is not dealt with the way to deal with it biblically is laid out for us here in ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 31 Where Paul says these words. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all malice. But be kind to one another. Tender hearted. 
forgiving one another just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now here we see from these verses not just how to deal with conflict, but but how to live in genuine peace. Here packed in these two short verses, Paul gives us very helpful and practical instruction on first what to avoid regarding conflict and then second what to pursue. What to avoid and what to pursue. We see that first point in verse 31 of what we are to avoid in regards to conflict. And then the second uh, point in the outline this morning is what to pursue. And we see that in verse 32. This message I've entitled uh, Matrimony or Mayhem. Again, just aiming this message particularly at marriages. But again, let me remind you that any relationship... Any human relationship is going to have conflict. So any human relationship needs to heed these biblical principles of how to resolve it, how to reconcile biblically. Let's look at the first point here. What to avoid, verse 31. Look there where Paul says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now before we look at these terms specifically, let's just remember to whom Paul is speaking. Paul begins this letter in Ephesians 1-2, calling this people at Ephesus saints. You who are saints at Ephesus, he's speaking here to believers, born-again believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, those to whom God has saved through the cross of his Son. These are Christians that he is talking with. And again, this tells us conflict can and does happen even within the body of Christ even between brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, even between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. Now, the first term that Paul mentions here in verse 31 is bitterness. It comes from a word that originally meant sharp or or pointed, and it came to refer to anger or unforgiveness felt towards another. You see, bitterness is this foolish notion that you can achieve some sort of justice by remaining angry with the person who sinned against you, the the one who offended you, the one who wronged you. It's this wrong notion that by exacting some form of revenge against them, either physically or within your own heart or mind, that 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 somehow brings satisfaction, that that somehow brings peace. But, But listen, it only does so at great personal cost. For bitterness is... The poison we drink, hoping others will die. Bitterness is the hole that that you dig to trap someone else, only to fall into it yourselves. Bitterness is Haman's gallows. Gallows that he built for another to be hung upon, only to be hung upon them himself. And that bitterness only feeds other sins. See, bitterness, it it continues to dwell on the wrong, right? It continues to think about over and over how you've been sinned against, how you've been hurt, how you've been harmed, how you've been wronged. It thinks that peace and consolation will only be found by thinking about that sin over and over. And as I said a moment ago, bitterness only feeds other sins. Paul mentions a few more in this passage. He talks about wrath and anger. Those are the next two terms he uses in verse 31. Wrath is this, these angry outbursts, these outward explosions. The word for anger here is a word that refers to that inner seething anger. You know, that we, that we're, my tongue just got tied. We're... We're two different kind, there are two different kinds of people in regards to anger. There are those who are the explosive kind. They're like a nuclear bomb. They just get lit up, boom, and they destroy everything around them. There are others who are more like a nuclear reactor, where that, that 
churning, that energy is bound up inside. But eventually, both of those lead to radioactive waste in our relationships, don't they? The anger can come in the form of what Paul says next in verse 31, the word clamor. Clamor, it's a word that means to shout or to yell or to scream. It can be a shout of joy. There are passages which describe it as a cry out of of grief. But here in this passage, in this context, it is to yell at another in anger. Clamor refers to that harsh speech, that, that yelling, that abusive language. Another verbal hostility is seen in the next word in verse 31, the word slander. That's a word that we get the the English word blasphemy from. It's a profane uh, or abusive speech that can be directed toward God or to someone else. Slander is that evil gossip that tears away at the integrity of another person, their reputation. It, It is talk that intends to cast another in a negative light. And after that word, Paul then ends this list with, uh, of conflict words with the word malice. Malice. Kakia in Greek, it means vice, evil, wickedness, badness. It's an attitude of ill will, a, a mean-spiritedness, a harshness towards someone else. And if you notice, all of these terms that he mentions here in verse 31 are all terms that are related to conflict, right? They're all surrounding friction within relationships. And if we take a step back here and and look at these words for a moment, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, they don't paint a very pretty picture, do they? They don't show a very good situation. In fact, they describe both the inner disposition and the outer expression of conflict that exists within relationships. And the fact that Paul is telling Christians here to not do this, Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, reminds us this stuff exists within our churches and within our homes and within our marriages. Even those marriages of leaders within the church. It's sad, it's disgraceful, but but we know what happens, right? We know what happens. Not only because Paul says it does, but because we have all experienced it, right? Husbands and wives who are bitter, angry, Yelling at one another, parents and children arguing, siblings who don't get along, fellow believers who refuse to be around one another even when gathered for worship on a Sunday morning, spouses who won't talk to one another, Christians not getting along. Brothers and sisters, how how I wish these things were not so. How I wish today would be the last day that I would be in a conflict, especially with my wife, but with anyone else. How I wish our church could not be accused of such things. And thankfully, Paul shows us here how we can avoid it. And what we can pursue to not be caught up in this conflict. Notice in verse 31, Paul gives an appeal here. He says, let let all of this be put away from you. I like how the NIV puts it. Get rid of it. Get rid of all of it. Paul here conveys an earnestness, and he conveys it in a way that might be hard to see in the the English here, but in the original Greek, he changes the verb tense, that verb to put away. It's interesting. All the verbs that he mentions in the list from verses 25 to 30 are in the present tense. But this verb in verse 31, put away, is in what's called the aorist tense. And I only bring this up because when an aorist tense is given in the form of a command, it is a command that, that is earnest, that is urgent. And by changing the verb tense, Paul is putting an exclamation point in his statement here. He's conveying this heartfelt plea, saying, let's be done with this. 
Let's be rid of it. It's like what Samwise told Frodo, right? Throw the ring in there. Get rid of it once and for all. That's what Paul is doing here. Throw it out. Brothers and sisters, as God's children, we should never do these things, right? We should never hold grudges. We should never vent sinful anger. We should never take revenge against one another. We should never be bitter or unforgiving. We should never quarrel or fight or argue with with anyone, especially a brother and sister in Christ, and especially our spouses. But yet, we are tempted. We are tempted to these things, right? We are tempted to be bitter. We are tempted to be angry, to express wrath, to yell or shout, to slander, to have malice in our hearts. Now, why do we do that? What would tempt us to do such things? Well, it happens when you're wronged, right? When someone has hurt you, when someone has sinned against you. And I've got news for you folks. It's shocking. It's mind-boggling. I mean, you won't believe it when I tell you, but it's absolutely true. You will be sinned against. Yes, I know it's amazing to think about, but it's true. You will be wronged by another believer. More than once. You will be sinned against by someone in your home, someone close to you. More than once. You will be offended. You will be hurt. Even by those in your own family. Even by your own spouse. And in that moment, when you've been wronged, how will you respond? How will you respond? You can be bitter. You can be angry. You can be resentful. You can be harsh. You can hold it against the other person. Or, or you can forgive. Turn with me to Romans 12 for a minute. Romans 12, 17. This is such an important passage in regards to this issue of how we should respond when we are wronged. Because again, our natural inclination when we are wronged is to what? Return the favor, right? An eye for an eye. That's in the Bible. Out of context. But that is our attitude, right? Well, notice here what Paul says in Romans 12 starting in verse 17, in regards to this issue when one has been wronged. Romans 12, 17, Paul says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think Paul's statement here is pretty straightforward. When you've been sinned against, when you've been wronged, don't pay it back. Don't return to evil. Don't seek revenge. Don't be bitter. And why is it that he says we are to withhold revenge? Why is it that he says we are to not Get back at that other person. Notice verse, 17, or verse 19, excuse me. Notice what he says there. Vengeance is what? Mine. I will repay. That means God will bring his righteous anger upon that sin that was committed against you. He will make things right. He will bring justice. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. A minute. Think about that statement. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And I want you to think about it in this way. Did God repay? Has he 
taken out that vengeance? Has he brought justice? God did. God did pour out his wrath against that sin committed against you by another believer. And do you know where he did that? How was his vengeance carried out? On the back of his own son. The father nailed Jesus, his son, to a cross to appease his wrath, his anger against that very sin, that very act of iniquity, that very wrong committed against you by another believer. Because when that brother or that sister in Christ, when they sinned against you, when your believing spouse sinned against you, their sin required payment, right? Right? You with me? It demanded punishment because it was first committed against a holy and loving God. So when it says here, leave room for the wrath of God, it means that the full fury of God's anger against that sin has been avenged. Justice has been done. It's been avenged on the very back and the ankles and the wrists and the head of his own son. So when you decide to take it upon yourself to get revenge, when you decide and determine to be bitter, to not forgive, listen to me carefully. When you do that, this is what you're saying to Jesus. Jesus, your sacrifice is not sufficient to pay for their sin. You're saying, Jesus, God's wrath poured out upon you is inadequate to cover the sin that my brother or sister or my spouse committed against me. That's what you're saying. You're telling Jesus right to his face, your precious blood is not valuable enough. Your sacrifice is not sufficient. That sin against me commands or demands more. You're telling Jesus in that moment these words, all that you suffered, all that you went through is not enough. More is required. Brothers and sisters, if you're in the midst of a conflict right now, if, if you find yourself having resentment towards another, towards your spouse, if you're holding on to bitter thoughts, if you're wishing harm, let me just tell you this. Lay down your arms. Give up. Forgive. I mean, what what are you really gaining by holding on to that? What would happen? Let's just do a thought experiment here. What would happen if you just forgave? What would you lose? What is so bad about not getting payback? What is so awful about not getting the revenge you think you deserve? Leave it at the cross. Be free of the bonds of bitterness. Be free of the bonds of anger. Rid your heart of its demands for blood. Because like any war or any feud or any conflict, in the end, nobody wins. Everybody loses. Reminds me of a time I watched on the Nature Channel, these two wild dogs fighting each other. It was a vicious fight. And you know what? At the end of the fight, both of them died. 
But Tim, it's so hard. It's so hard to let this go. I know it's hard. (laughs) I know what bitterness feels like. I know what it does to a person. And and I can imagine you may have been sinned against in far worse ways than, than I have in my life. And you struggle with resentment. Maybe your, your stomach turns within you. Your heart burns whenever you think about what was done to you. Or whenever you see that other person. You wrestle with anger. You wrestle with hurt. But let me ask you this. Do you want to stay there? Do you want to live the rest of your life with that feeling? Do you want to be destroyed by it? Do you want to be in bondage to it? Or do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? Do you want to have the, the joy and contentment and peace in a life without resentment or hostility? Then hear Paul's words in what he says in verse 32. But be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Brothers and sisters, there's freedom in these words. Right here in this one short verse, Paul shows us the answer to resentment and bitterness. He presents before us, he unfolds the path towards resolving anger and conflict. And so far we've been looking at what to avoid. Now Paul directs our attention on what to pursue. He begins in verse 32 with a contrasting conjunction, but. Now it's not in some translations, but it's there in the original Greek. There's a contrast. But become kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. And here in verse 32, Paul shows us three attributes, three ways, three godly qualities you must pursue if you would find peace in the midst of conflict in your relationships. You see those three qualities? Kindness, tender-hearted, forgiving. Paul first says, be kind. We don't really need a definition of this word, right? We know what kindness means. We understand what it looks like. Mark Twain said, kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. I think I've shared this before, but I remember a time several years ago, my family was at the Magnolia's Holiday in the Park. You guys been there? So I think the week before Thanksgiving, like a, on Magnolia Boulevard, there's a bunch of businesses that are open. There's Christmas music playing. There's all kinds of festivities going on to, to bring in the, the holiday season. In fact, one year, I think somebody trucked in some snow and they were, some kids were playing on it. But uh, during that time, a lot of the businesses are giving out free items, right? And this particular year that we went, uh, one business was giving out these helium balloons, so we were with the family with a bunch of young children. And so all the little kids got their helium balloons. And parents, what's the first instruction you give your child with a helium balloon? Right? Well, guess what happened? One of the little girls let go and watched her balloon float into the air. And she began sobbing and weeping. And I can feel her pain. I still remember San Francisco Zoo when I was a little boy letting go of mine. <laughs> It hurt deeply. So here's this, this little girl. She's crying. She's lost her balloon. And, and at the time, right away, my, my daughter, who was about three years old, I think at the time, she immediately hands her balloon to this little girl. Says, you can have mine. It was so sweet, right? I just always think of that because that to me is the picture of kindness. Just an unsolicited act of goodwill towards somebody else. Unconditional. It's doing something sweet, something helpful, something good to someone else. 
And Paul says here, if you want to combat a bitter, angry heart, this is what you need to do. You need to express kindness to the one you'd rather do the opposite for. You need to think of tangible ways, specific acts of kindness towards that person. That is how you deal with a bitter heart. Our Heavenly Father is like that. He's not dealing with a bitter heart, but He is one who is kind. Luke 6, 35, Jesus said these words, But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Or Titus 3, 5 says these words, or 3, 4, When the kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. You see, God has been kind to us, hasn't he? Hasn't he? And has he been kind to us because we deserve it? Has he been kind to us because we are just these wonderful creatures who have shown love and and goodness and, and, and obedience to God all the time? No, he's been kind to us even though we've sinned against him. That passage there when it says he has been kind to evil and ungrateful men, that's us. That's us. And the fact that he has been so kind to us should move us to express the same towards someone else, especially someone else who sinned against us. So instead of thinking over and over how you have been wronged, how you have been hurt, how you have been offended, how you have been harmed, you need to instead pursue the opposite. Again, rather than plot revenge, think of ways that you can show kindness tangibly to that person. What's something that they would appreciate? Do that, and don't just do it one time. Okay, God, I did my one act of kindness. I'm still bitter. No, it's an ongoing pursuit. Looking back at verse 32, after kindness, Paul adds a second attribute of what we are to pursue in order to resolve conflict biblically. And that is to be, what he says is, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Uh, the Greek word that is used here originally refers to the, the bowels, the innards, the, the guts of a person. Because that's where you feel emotion. Tender-hearted simply means compassion. To be compassionate. It's a deep feeling of empathy. I love how one man said that true empathy is your pain in my heart. I think that expresses it well. See, one, one big problem, one huge problem with bitterness and hostility and vengeful anger is that, is that these attitudes, they prevent you from being compassionate. They prevent you from seeing the world through that other person's eyes. They prevent you from looking at things through the other person's perspective. Bitterness only causes a bitter spouse to say this, my spouse sinned against me, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to make her feel how I felt. Bitterness, it prevents us from asking these kinds of questions. I wonder why my wife did that. I wonder what provoked my husband to say that. I wonder what caused that other person, what tempted them to do that thing that they did to me. Right? Bitterness prevents us from thinking that way. But to be compassionate means that rather than condemning that person, rather than being angry with them, instead you enter their world. You walk in their shoes. You look through their eyes. You want compassion, right? No? Well, you guys are awful godly. I'm amazed. You want compassion, don't you? You want to have mercy shown to you, right? You want forgiveness, right? Well, the other person does too. 
I mean, what? think about this scenario. Let's say that you're out walking uh, your dog one day and you look up in a tree and there's this kid that's climbing out on the tree and he's on this very small branch and he's climbing toward the end of the branch. What do you do? Ignore him and keep walking. No, right? Hey, kid, you better stop. That branch is going to break. Now, what if the kid looks at you and says, ah, get you old person. I'm fine. They ignore you. And then guess what happens? Right? There he is lying on the ground, badly hurt. What would you do in that moment? I told you, kid, you didn't listen to me, so there you go. Is that what you do? No. You would help the kid, right? Why? He just ignored you. He was just rude to you. He just suffered exactly what you said would happen. Because he's hurt and he needs help, you would help him. You would show compassion in spite of what we did. We need to remember this. You and I are just like that kid at times. We don't listen. We willingly and knowingly go down a path of wrong and then suffer the consequences for it. So when that other person sins against you, you need to see them as like that kid who is lying on the ground in need of help. And know how we need this quality in our marriages, don't we? Because we do sin against each other. We do offend one another. We do hurt one another. And so we need to have this kind of compassion or else bitterness and anger, wrath, clamor, slander, those will destroy your marriage. Now I know this can be very hard. I know that you may not feel like showing compassion. You may have been sinned against horribly, perhaps repeatedly. And so compassion is the furthest thing from your mind. Showing kindness is the last thing you want to do. And that's why Paul doesn't stop in the middle of verse 32 with that word tenderhearted. He has more to say. How do you get past these feelings of bitterness? How do you get past them to show empathy? How do you get past them to express kindness even when you don't feel like it? Well, look in the middle of verse 32 where Paul gives these words. Forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. This short little phrase tucked here right at the end of chapter 4. These few words that Paul gives, these unlock the whole thing. This truth contained here provides the means and the motivation to be free from a bitter and vengeful heart. This phrase right here, it's the key. It's the key to having peace with others. It's the key to having a joyful and fulfilling marriage. Forgive here is a word charizomai it shares the same root as as charis and that's the only reason i'm bringing it up because paul uses this word charis or grace a lot in this letter to the ephesians in fact 15 times he speaks of grace particularly god's grace we could go all through the letter we sang a song regarding it to the praise of your glory and grace that's from ephesians chapter one and over and over he talks about the grace of god here Now, charizomai can be translated as forgiveness, but its more general meaning is this idea of being gracious. There's another word in Greek that's normally translated to forgive. So I think a better way to to look at this last phrase would be gracing one another, just as God in Christ has also graced us. And in the context of conflict, that grace would mean extending pardon. It would mean to forgive. 
Paul is calling us here to give free, unmerited, undeserved favor towards someone else, even towards a person who has sinned against you, who has wronged you. Paul is taking us here to the core theme of his letter. He's taking us here to to the core principle found within the letter of the Ephesians, and that is God's grace. God's grace. Again, 15 times we see that expressed here in this letter. Paul's doing that to emphasize the fact his grace is overflowing, his grace is abundant, his, his grace is unending, it's abounding, and it will be forever. In fact, I love in Ephesians 2, 7, where it says there that, that let me get the, the phrase correct here, in order that in the ages to come, he saved us, in order in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us who believe. You see, one of the reasons God has saved you is that for eternity, he wants to pour out his grace upon you. It's one of the reasons that he saved you. To show you grace forever. Man, what a deal that is. But that's exactly the idea here, is that Paul's been talking about God's overflowing grace. And so now here in Ephesians 4, 32, as application, he says, for someone who has sinned against you, you need to be gracing them, just as God in Christ has also abundantly, overflowingly, if that's a word, profusely poured out his grace upon you. And notice Paul says here in verse 32, we are to be gracing each other. That's very important that you see this. This means that not only do you need to show grace to others, but they will need to show grace to you. Because it goes both ways. Not only will someone sin against you, But yes, you will sin against them. You will sin against someone else. You will offend and hurt and wrong. Every sin in your home is not coming just from your spouse. You're contributing to that as well. And so they will need to show you grace. They will need to forgive you. They will need to be kind towards you. They will need to have compassion for you. And this again reminds us we are all prone to wander. We are all susceptible to our flesh and to Satan. We are all uh, susceptible and and give in to various temptations. And at times, we are like that kid. We keep going out on the branch and we choose to sin. And often that sin is towards someone else. At this point, some of you may be thinking, well, Tim, I, I know this. I know I need to show grace. I know I need to forgive. But I just can't seem to do it. I just can't seem to do it. I, I keep thinking about over and over how, how much that person has hurt me. I keep thinking of over and over what my husband has said to me over and over again. I, I keep thinking about what my wife did to me. I keep thinking about fill in the blank. It's just so hard. How do I do this? How do I have the strength to forgive? How can I have the motivation or desire to show compassion? What will move me to, to want to be kind? How do I forgive? Well, look carefully at the last phrase in verse 32. The answer is there. Gracing each other just as God in Christ has also graced you. That's how. You only have the ability to forgive. You you only have the strength to show kindness. You only have the desire to be tender-hearted. You will only have the motivation to show grace if you truly understand and have experienced the grace of God yourself. 
So if you're struggling to forgive, to me, I just see two options there. Then either you really don't know him, or you're trying on your own to forgive in your own strength. Either way, you don't, you don't grasp the power of the gospel. Either way, you're not understanding God's forgiveness. Either way, you don't realize the, the power that God has to enable you to forgive through what he has done in his son. Listen, if there's an unwillingness that consistently resides in your heart, an unwillingness to forgive, then you first need to ask yourself if you've experienced God's forgiveness yourself. Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus said, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is in heaven, will also forgive you your transgressions. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, is we need to forgive. And he's not saying that in order to earn forgiveness from God, we need to be forgiving to others. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But what he's telling us is he indicates what he expects from the heart of a true believer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this of Paul's words from Ephesians 4.32. He said, The only people who will carry out this exhortation of the apostle are those who know that God has forgiven them. Nobody else. The vital question, therefore, is, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Close quote. Brothers and sisters, it all comes down to this. One who has been forgiven will be forgiving. Did you catch that? One who has been forgiven will be forgiving. For in the end, the power to forgive comes from having received God's forgiveness yourself. If there's anything that describes a Christian, it is that he or she is one who shows grace. It is that he or she is one who forgives because they have been forgiven on a much larger scale. Right, it reminds me of a, of a parable in Matthew 18 that Jesus spoke of in regards to the great forgiveness that Christ has given. Ephesians 2.14 describes this, that at the heart of the gospel is peace. It says there that Jesus is our peace. And then later in verse 16, it says that he has reconciled us in one body to God through the cross. The cross has brought peace. So lay down your burden of bitterness. Lay it down at the cross. Let the blood of Christ wash over it and be free of it. Now, I'm not saying that if you ever struggle with resentment or if you ever struggle with bitterness or not wanting to forgive that you're not saved. Again, Paul's exhorting believers here, right? In Ephesians chapter 4. So in that moment of struggle, though, you need to hold on to these last few words that Paul gives us here. Just as God in Christ has also graced you. For you will not see victory over your bitterness. You will not show grace to others, especially to your spouse. You will not forgive if you do not understand and appreciate God's grace towards you. But so many don't reflect on God's grace. Instead, they try to forgive in their own strength, right? Maybe you've had this thought at times, you know, God tells me not to be bitter. He tells me not to be angry, but to be kind and forgive. So I just need to do that. But you see... Even expressing those words, all the while there's a war raging on in your heart. The tentacles of, of resentment and revenge and bitterness just keep surrounding you. Because you're trying to do it in your own strength. You just don't understand or realize what it means that God has graced you. You don't appreciate that. Or, or maybe you've allowed your worship of self to supersede your worship of God. 
Again, that, that parable in Matthew 18 comes back to my mind so often. Or, you know, the one of the, the servant who was forgiven this huge unpayable debt by the king, and then he goes out and chokes a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller amount. You remember that parable, right? It's a classic one on forgiveness. Though the servant had been forgiven much, he had refused to forgive little. And again, that's because he did not understand or appreciate or remember the debt that had been forgiven him. And so he was unwilling to do the same. So just as God and Christ has also forgiven you, should motivate you, should empower you. It should so move your heart that you are willing and desiring to show grace and forgiveness no matter what has been done to you. Now, beloved, Paul's words here are not meant to guilt you into this. They're not meant to make you feel guilty to the point where you say, well, God has forgiven me, so I guess I have to forgive. Thanks a lot, God. (laughs) It sure puts me in a bad light if I don't forgive this other person, because I know I have to. I really don't have much of a choice, I guess. No, Paul is reminding us here of God's grace, not to obligate us by guilt, but to motivate us by gratitude. Since I've been forgiven all my sins, right, big pile here, I can forgive sins of another, little pile over here. This doesn't minimize a sin against us. Sin does hurt. It is real. That debt that was owed by the fellow servant was not minimal. It was like a half year salary or something like that. But what Christ is saying is this. He's simply saying this. Look, I took care of their big pile and your pile of sins. And since my huge mountain of sin against God is so much larger, since it has been removed, now I have the power to forgive and the motivation to forgive the much smaller dirt mound of my spouse's sin against me. Again, Paul reminds us here of God's grace in your life, not to obligate you by guilt, but so that you would realize, I've been forgiven all my sins. And God continues to forgive all my sins, right? So I can do that for someone else. If my debts have been erased, if they've been canceled out, I have the means to forgive debts, the debts of others. I have the means to forgive the debts of my spouse. I have the means to forgive the debts of other family members. I can afford it now. (laughs) Right? If some of you maybe have huge loans right now and you're like, it's hard to afford anything else. Just think if all your debts were erased. They were just gone. Bank error in your favor, right? Isn't that a card monopoly? (laughs) Think if that happened. Right? You could afford to do so many things, to help others, to do all these kinds of things. Well, the same has happened to your sin debt. It's been erased. It's gone. So you have the power, the ability now to forgive others of their debt. Remembering God's grace in your life reminds you of just how good and loving and kind God has been despite the fact that none of us deserves it. And dwelling on that, meditating on that, that is what will move your affections. That is what will move your heart. That is what will motivate and empower you to be so thankful that you would find it a joy and a pleasure, a privilege to extend that forgiveness to someone else. That's a God thing. It's not going to happen any other way. 
And again, the intent here is not to be driven by guilt or obligated by guilt, but to be motivated by gratitude. I I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said it this way. To be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. Catch what he's saying there? It's wonderful to be forgiven by someone else. But Spurgeon is saying it is even a greater blessing still to be forgiving to someone else. And so do you want to experience real joy in your marriage? Do you want to have peace in your heart? Especially when another has sinned against you. Especially when a spouse has harmed you or wronged you. Do you want to grow in your love for your spouse? Do you want to be in harmony in your family with others in the body of Christ, then make it a habit to be compassionate and to forgive. And beloved, when I say forgive, I'm not talking about a feeling. I'm talking about a promise. There is a difference. To forgive is to make a commitment. It's not just to tell you, okay, I'm going to feel better. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to feel better. That's not what it is. It's not some chant to try to move your affections or your heart. What forgiveness is, is simply to saying this, I will make a commitment not to bring this up again. I will make a commitment not to use what you did to me against you. I will make a commitment not to tell others about it. I will make a commitment that our relationship will not be affected from my part. It's a promise, not a feeling. There was a couple I heard about. They'd been married about 15 years, and they began to experience more and more conflict with one another. They hated fighting. They wanted their marriage to work. And so they talked about several ideas of what they could do. And after discussing several options, they came to to agree on an idea that the the wife had had, which was to uh, have what they called a a wrongs box. And each of them would have this box, and they have the word wrongs on it, W-R-O-N-G-S. And what they would do is that each week, if a their spouse had committed a sin or an offense or a wrong or an annoyance that they would put it in their wrongs box. So if the husband did something against the wife, she would write down that wrong and put it in the box. So at the end of the week, they would then discuss these wrongs committed against one another and and deal with them. And so they went about doing this. They would... uh, During the course of the week, they were very diligent to, as things took place, they would write these things down on pieces of slips of paper and put them in the box, and the end of the week came. So they sat down together, each of them with their boxes, which were both full, by the way. (laughs) And as they sat together, the husband said, I'll I'll look at your box first. And so his wife hands him her box of wrongs that he had committed, and as he's opening up the box and he's seeing all these slips of paper and he's reading each of the slips the things on them such as he spoke unkindly to me this morning before work or another slip said he forgot to put his tools away again another slip talked about he didn't thank me for dinner the dinner i had prepared he said i talked too much he left his dirty clothes on the floor he ignored me again when he got home today so several things like this they're on the list and the husband he's reading each of these things carefully and quietly he's reflecting upon these various things, and at the end of them, he looked at her and he apologized. Asked forgiveness for the things that that he had done. Well, after that, the husband hands his box to his wife, 
And it too was full of slips of paper. And as she began to unfold each slip of paper, she noticed that all of them had the same phrase written on them. As she read each phrase, every one of these slips of paper said these words, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. My question to you today is which spouse are you? What would you put in your wrongs box? Will you keep a record of sins against you? Or will you forgive? Let's pray. Father, we've been confronted with some challenging truths. Lord, for many of us, this is among the most difficult of things to do, to forgive another who has sinned against us, especially, Lord, um, a spouse who may continue to be sinning against us. Oh, Lord, bitterness is such a difficult beast. Unforgiveness is such a powerful enemy, monster. Lord, we confess in and of ourselves, we... (laughs) We do not have the resources on our own to deal with with this. Lord, I know that many are likely struggling with these things because they don't realize the power that exists from your grace and that reflecting on the truths of how you have dealt with us, how you have forgiven us, how you are not harboring bitterness against us, how you have poured out your wrath against our sin upon your own Son, how you have shown us such abundant grace and commit to do so for eternity? Lord, I fear there are some in here who don't understand that grace because they have not experienced it themselves. I pray, God, that you would open their eyes to the truth of good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come, lived a perfect life, and died upon a cross so that any who would repent and believe could be forgiven all their sins. Pray, Lord, that if there are any here that you would open the eyes of their heart to understand and embrace that wonderful gospel. Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters here, for any who are struggling right now in their marriages or perhaps in some relationship in their life, that, Lord, there's not peace or reconciliation, that, let's, Lord, you would bring that about, that you would use your word this morning to motivate us to strengthen and empower to pursue that peace. Because in the end, we we desire that so that the Lord Jesus will be lifted up and so that people would see the power of the gospel. Lord, we know you, you do not give us any command that you will not empower us to do. And we are grateful for that. We are thankful. Lord, you are abundant in your grace. Your grace is is amazing. We thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.